Welcome to this week's edition of The Vasey View. This is my regular podcast where I explore the links between tech and public policy. And I sometimes go on tour. I go on virtual tours. I've been to France. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Holland. I've been to Israel, looking at how those countries put together their tech policies. And sometimes I take a deep dive into a sector like agritech or cybersecurity. And sometimes I talk to big picture policy thinkers like Benedict Evans or Tony Blair or Malcolm Turnbull. So I'm here with William Tunsil Pedder in only my second ever live face-to-face podcast with the person I'm talking to. All the others have done on Zoom, but with the end of lockdown, we thought we'd take advantage. And I'm here with William. And one of the advantages of being face-to-face is I can exclusively reveal that he makes a fantastic cup of coffee, which uh, I'm very much enjoying. But it's very nice to be here. William, hello. Hello. Now, I'm going to ask William to introduce himself, but briefly, he's well known because he founded a company in Cambridge called Evie, which uh, he built up in Cambridge through the uh, late noughties, as it were. And in 2012, that company, Evie, was sold to Amazon and was incorporated into Amazon. And, and William stayed with Amazon until he left in 2016. But the whole point about Evie, and one of the reasons I really want to talk to William, is it was part of the package, as it were, uh, that Amazon used to develop the voice activation technology, if you like, that is now Alexa. And all of us now talking to our speakers in our living rooms and our kitchens. Quite a lot of that journey, I think William's going to be quite modest about it, but quite a lot of that journey started with the kind of work that William uh, and his colleagues did at Evie. So welcome to the podcast, William. Thank you very much. So um, I've done a sort of cack-handed introduction, which is what, what I normally do to, with the people that I'm interviewing. You will do, be much better at explaining, I mean, obviously, you were a gifted programmer at Cambridge. You were interested in natural language programming. You had certain views and ideas about search, which is where this journey started. And you started Evie. There's a lot of ground to cover here, but I'm going to give you, as it were, a blank sheet of paper to tell us the story of the journey towards founding Evie and building it up. Uh, yes, so I was programming computers since I was 13 years old. And making money from doing so. Uh, uh, Yes, that's right. So I was kind of, I've been fascinated by making computers do things that they couldn't previously do since I was a a small child. And I've been creating commercial software since I was a a small child as well. When I was like 13, I was sitting in the computer room in my high school, writing software for my computer teacher's software company, Michael Ryan. And uh, this was in Scotland, in Dundee. And I did a computer science degree at Cambridge University. But other than that, I have been continuing to write computer software and continuing to try and push the boundaries of what computers can do for many decades since then. I'm now 52, so a lot of lot of decades. And the origins of Alexa and EV, it was originally called True Knowledge, was I wanted to solve a really, really big problem. So the biggest problem I could find was how do you make computers understand natural language. Natural language means English or any other language, the language that human beings have. Why is it that when you go to Google, you guess keywords, Google doesn't tell you exactly what you want. Google Google gives you 10 blue links. You poke around, you try, you read the pages, and hopefully you find what you're looking for. But at the time, and actually even to some extent now, Google didn't generally give you the answer to a naturally phrased question. And if you look at science fiction, if you look at Star Trek, if you look at Blake Seven, which was my favorite sci-fi show as a child, 
computers do understand. You spoke to the computer. It was the natural way of interacting with technology. It's how we interact with people. Everybody knows how to speak. Everybody learns how to speak with people. Why can't you just ask computers to do things? Why can't you ask the questions to a computer? Why can't you just tell the computer to do something? Why do you need to mess around with menus and buttons and keywords? And the reason for that is that the engineering is really, really difficult. What the brain does when it reads something is absolutely magical. Something happens in your brain that makes you understand that you didn't understand before. And it's very, very difficult to make a machine do that. Mm. You know, if you're writing science fiction, you can imagine the product, but you don't have to do the engineering. You can fake it. Yeah. If, you're, if, you're, if you're trying to build something like Alexa, you do need to do the engineering. It needs to work very well. It needs to work a large percentage of the time. It needs to work at scale. Yeah. So I'm very, very proud that we, you know, we managed to build, finally build the sort of version 0.1 of the Star Trek computer and have it have mass adoption. So I'm very, very proud of that. And, and large chunks of the AI tech this in Alexa came from my startup, as you mentioned. So it was it was uh, a ten year journey, uh, seven years as a venture capital backed British uh, startup in Cambridge, and three and a half years for me, three and a half years in Amazon. But obviously, it's still continuing. EV Technologies, which was my startup, is is Amazon's Cambridge subsidiary. It's where everybody who works for Amazon in Cambridge continues to work. I think it employs about a thousand people, and. Um, Obviously, the product that came out of it, I'm, I'm very proud of. It's a brand that everybody's heard of. They've sold hundreds of millions of devices. Uh, it's the most visible sort of AI product. It's also an, a, a new product category, the smart speaker. Yeah. We pioneered the smart speaker, and it's it had the highest, the fastest ever adoption of any new product category. So even faster than the mobile phone. Somebody drew this amazing graph that sort of goes back to radio and television. How many years it took to get to 50% yeah. saturation in the US market. And the smart speaker is now right at the top as the fastest ever adopted new product category. So I'm very, very proud of that. It's an amazing story. And what fascinates me, I mean, there are lo- there's lots to unpack there, but what fascinates me is, is this journey to get to, as it were, the smart speaker. Because I'm ignorant, of course, I thought of, I'm calling it voice activated, I'm sure there's a proper phrase for it, but I thought that the the sort of smart speaker was really just a way of doing search with your voice rather than typing into a computer. And I hadn't appreciated that actually that's the sort of irrelevant bit. It's much more to do with the fact that because you are asking with a voice and getting a voice replying, you're not going to get what I'm used to doing, which is 20 links and trying to find the best link you've got to get it as far as possible you've got to get the best link the right answer when you ask the question so that that's the really difficult programming behind it yeah for, for question answering for search yeah. that's exactly right google can produce 10 blue links for anything exactly and when it produces bad links people assume it's their fault they assume they haven't typed the right keywords in if you ask alexa a question and she says something nonsensical back Yes. You blame the product. You think that she's getting it wrong. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and also it's, it's much more difficult. You know, if the third link or the fifth link is the right thing in Google, that's fine. And when you're, when you're speaking, it's also, you can only, you've only got a few seconds to speak. You know, Google can point you at 10, 10 web pages that, that would take you half an hour to read each. Yeah. And if, the, if what you're looking for is in there somewhere, it, it's kind of succeeded. But with voice, it's got to be very high precision. It's got to understand almost yeah. everything that's asked. And it's got to produce an answer that is, not only coherent, but right almost all the time. And it's got to give you the information you need in a, in a very short space of time because voice is naturally much slower than pointing at a web page. So yes, it's super hard, and which is why you know, Google has taken many decades to get to the point where it's starting to do it. And it is doing it more and more. You know, they've realized this is an important thing for them to, to do. But the, again, the engineering is, is super hard. And, and AI is, is behind humans in terms of 
natural language understanding. So this is one of the big frontiers of, of AI is getting computers to be able to read, to be able to read documents, understand documents, yeah. you know, uh, reason. As opposed to looking just for keywords. As opposed to searching for keywords, which isn't even, you could argue is not even AI. It's a yeah. kind of old fashioned yeah. algorithmic search. I mean, the, the programming in the work seems unbelievably difficult, but you explain it in one article as, as a sort of, not quite a sort of decision tree, but a sort of categorization. So you can say that, uh, you know, is a bat a bird? Because a bat is in the silo of mammal, the AI can answer, no, it's not a bird. Yeah, what we're talking about here is the, is the sort of underlying technology of the first startup, yeah. which was representing facts. So we represented structured representations, symbolic representations for everything that you could talk about. And we had relationships between them that were, that were stored and known about by the machine. And part of that, as you're talking about, is, is what we call the ontology, which is like classes of things and how those classes of things relate to other classes. So bats is a class. All the bats you see are members of that class. And birds are a class. And it knew facts about them. It knew that bats and birds were unrelated. But, but bats and mammals, maybe, are related. Or bats and mammals. Uh, mm. so, so facts like that were used heavily in both natural language understanding and as part of the, part of the question answering process. And, I mean, I'm obviously a character in a Star Trek movie when I'm interacting with my Alexa. I don't really care or have any ability to understand the technology that lies behind it. But when you pointed out that the smart speaker has, you know, outpaced every other kind of technology in terms of its adoption, I partly think as well that there seems to be a sort of element of where it's stalled. And I wonder what your prediction is for the future in the sense that everyone gets an Alexa and they say to them, you know, what's the time? What's the weather like going to be? When's my bus coming? The dream has to be for the Star Trek character that you walk into the house and say, turn the lights on. Can you put the oven on? You know, can you close the curtains? And you also get in your car and you say, I'm going over to see William. Can you take me there? Why has not the kind of the voice activated smart home become a kind of thing that you can almost buy off the shelf? I, I think it's pretty close, actually. I think almost all of those use cases that you just mentioned are actually possible now. Uh, and there are people doing them now. Mm. They may not have quite the same wide adoption that, that this, the, the base device has, mm. uh, but smart home is very much part of the ecosystem now. I think, that, I mean, there are other things that they can't yet do. And I think that's very difficult to predict because that requires, you know, you're predicting when the next advance in technology is going to be. Mm. Some technologies advance very rapidly. Some technologies stall for a decade or so and then suddenly advance. So it, it's very difficult to know. But I th I'm very optimistic. I think there'll be, in the future, you'll expect all technology to respond to voice. So you'll walk up to something, you'll speak to it. If it doesn't respond, you'll think it's broken. And <laughs> and right now that isn't true. Yeah. Uh, so you know we are still using buttons and menus and yeah. and things. And and those sorry those interfaces may still be there as well. You know if you walk into a lift, there may well still be buttons that you press. But you would also expect to talk to the lift and it, it, it to respond and answer questions and and take you to the floor that you asked for. And if you didn't, you will you you, yeah. you would wonder. You would wonder what's wrong. So I, I think that's coming at, but how how fast that kind of adoption is uh, remains to be seen. I, I think it's definitely coming. And is this software a sort of commodity now? Because obviously Google has a smart speaker, Facebook has a smart speaker, Alexa has a smart speaker, but they're all using different, their own proprietary technology, yes. which they've had to kind of build yes. from scratch. Yeah, so it's it's very difficult to build this technology. Yeah, so, exactly. So, you know, we knew... When we were building Alexa, we knew that Google was one of the few companies in the world that would be able to compete uh, and build something relatively quickly. They've got the, the know-how and the data yeah. and whatever. Yeah. And, and we were right. So, you know, they came along with a essentially a copycat product, Google Home. 
uh, with, their, with their voice assistant in it. Uh, and they launched that uh, a few years after we launched ours. And that's a you know, very, very good uh, alternative technically. And Microsoft has produced one and Apple has sort of produced one that they've actually now discontinued. But there's, it's, it's very difficult. There's not many companies that could build something that works as well as that. So it's hard. And why are people not selling it? Why, why is Amazon not selling this software to other companies to save? It, it is. It is. You can, you can put Alexa into, if you want to put Alexa into your own hardware, you can definitely do an, a deal with Amazon to do so. And in fact, there are, there are products that have Alexa in them. And are there any kind of, I mean, obviously the thrust of this podcast, and we're going to talk about a whole range of issues from how to support startups and scale-ups to the future genesis of AI, but just sticking with voice activation for a moment, are there any sort of public policy implications? I mean, I know from my time with the government digital service, for example, obviously the government digital service has moved to make sure that you can say, you know, how do I renew my passport to your your Alexa or whatever, but uh, that's just a sort of straightforward routine use case. But I can't see that there are any government doesn't need to worry particularly about the proliferation of... Um, so I, I don't think so. I mean, there are people, people have concerns about privacy. Yeah, oh, that's right, because they're listening, aren't they? Well, yeah, well <laughs> this, is one of my, this is one of my pet peeves, is that almost everybody, smart, intelligent, educated people, are convinced that their Alexa device is sitting spying on their private conversations the whole time. Yeah. Their, their secret recordings are going up to Amazon and being used for evil purposes. <laughs> And it's kind of mind-blowing how wide that belief is. Yes. It's also completely and utterly untrue. Excellent. Well, I'm glad I hit your pet peeve. Yes. Carry on. <laughs> get, get it out of your system. Okay. So the device is not listening like a human is listening. It's scanning for the wake word. So it's scanning for one word, Alexa, or whatever you set it to. Uh, nothing is leaving the home and nothing is being recorded when it's in that mode. So from a privacy point of view, it's almost completely safe. When you say Alexa, the LEDs go on. At that point, it is streaming. So at that point, things are being recorded and things are leaving the house. But they are going into like a very private bit of cloud. It's not public. Uh, you can review those recordings in the Alexa app and you can delete them if you're worried. Or you can delete all of them. That, you know, the, the, the view that, uh, that something untoward is going on is, is, is incorrect. And are there, I mean, because facial recognition, for example, has had these issues, privacy issues, and also obviously racial discrimination issues and things like that. I mean, is, is there a kind of debate going on in terms of voice uh, activation about different accents or whatever not being... Yeah, I think, yes, yeah, skin colour may be less relevant for yeah. voice, but, but being Scottish might be, a, might be, might be something that, where mm. there's bias, for example. So, yes, obviously a big theme in AI is around bias. You're, yes. you're taking data. The machine isn't prejudiced in any way, but it is, uh, where you're using statistical machine learning, it is, it is learning from the data that you give it. So if there is bias in the data, it's learning that bias and the algorithm is going to be biased in the same way that the data is. Mm -hmm. So if you were to only train a speech recognition system on people that live, educated people that live in the southeast, it'll work much better for educated people that live in the southeast than it will for people that live in the north or people that live in Scotland. Yeah. So it's incumbent on people who are building these devices to make sure that they get data from everywhere and from all of the potential customers they have so those biases don't exist. I mean, that's maybe a less... You know, there are, there are worse examples of bias in AI being causing potential problems than that, but, but that would be an example that's relevant to voice. Let's segue into AI in terms of you know, your, your journey towards building Eevee was about getting this kind of one-shot answer, and that was in terms of what you were saying, how we get computers to 
understand understand how, how reason talk. and answer questions exactly. and you know do commands interact with people like people interact with people exactly yep. and you use a sort of uh, very interesting word there which is reason which is one I thought you would sort of shy away from because I, I, I would have thought people in your profession are very keen to kind of make the point that artificial intelligence is, is probably more accurately described as machine learning. It's not about creating a computer that can think because that sets off all sorts of hairs running till you get to the killer robot point. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot about this. It's a challenge. I think the phrase artificial intelligence causes some problems. Everybody understands what intelligence is, at least intuitively, and everybody therefore understands what artificial intelligence is. So the phrase artificial intelligence does create this image of a human being that is a robot. And in reality, intelligence isn't really very well defined. There are things that your brain can do, and there are things that computers can do. Some of those things computers can do moderately well. Some of those things computers can do extremely well and have been able to do extremely well for decades. But this overall idea of a sort of intellectual reasoning, calculating, generally intelligent entity doesn't exist. You know, the, the idea that that is here now is, is not the case. There's many, many things that need to be invented before we have that. Uh, at the same time, we're also struggling to have alternative words. So, you know, I use the word reasoning. I think that's a legitimate word. When Alexa is answering a question that has never been asked to her before, you know, she may have to reason from things that she already knows to answer that question. That is most definitely something that she can do. You know, there is not another word that I can think of that uh, is not reasoning. Maybe people, when people think of reasoning, they think of it as something slightly bigger. But it is reasoning. It's combining facts to produce new facts to answer the unique question that has just been asked. I, I had a similar conversation a few days ago about the word understanding. You know, we're talking about how these big deep learning models understand language better than the previous versions. And that also creates potentially a, a little bit of a, a misconception amongst people that don't deeply understand the technology because understanding creates this idea of, of understanding like humans do. But, you know, if you define understanding as working out what the person that wrote that language is meant, what their intent was, it most definitely is a legitimate use of the word because these these machines are you know beginning to understand what yes. the person's intent is i can't think of a, a synonym of understand that is better that is more accurate so unfortunately talking about ai is fraught with these kind of slight gaps between the image that comes up in people's heads and what actual reality is right now in the machine uh, but it's a very interesting topic and it's 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 a constant challenge we don't want to overhype the technology, but but it is genuinely exciting, and it's also continuously changing and improving. No, no, I mean I, I completely get that. I can see why you would use the words reason and understand to describe those two processes that you've just uh, outlined. Just as I mean, maybe this is a terrible parallel to use. Just as my pet dog would understand if I say sit <laughs> and would reason uh, that it's not getting any more food until it you know yeah does what I tell it or something like that. Sorry, I, I, I'm not a pet abuser by the way. Just for the for the record but i love my dog very much but uh so i can see why you would use that but you would not then say this dog is now you know uh, an intelligent human being but in terms of uh artificial intelligence machine learning whatever you want to call it is there uh, the distinction but so the big debate at the moment is there are two areas of public policy one is obviously how you use artificial intelligence machine learning machine learning to kind of churn through massive data sets and come up with you know rapid answers not really that different, although obviously much harder than, you know, a calculator coming up with an answer to a sum. So, And the obvious issue is health data, where you would say uh, the deployment of artificial intelligence and machine learning 
is going to be a massive boon. You're going to get these fantastic diagnoses in rapid time that will probably be more accurate than human diagnosis. And the controversy there is not to do with the use of artificial intelligence, it's to do with the data and the privacy of the data. So that's that's very far removed from the artificial intelligence that you're interested in. That's sort of pretty routine stuff now, isn't it? I, I think it depends on the application. Yeah. So what excites me is the potential for finding insights into illness and disease from these large data sets that, that are not currently there, which will improve health. Yeah. And that's a huge win for everybody. So, and obviously, the, as you say, there is risks around privacy and people are very, very concerned about that. But I think those can be dealt with. I think you can do both. You can make use of that large amount of data to get those insights and you can also protect you can also protect people's privacy and risks around their personal data being exposed yeah. or revealed or abused in some way. You, you say it's simple, it depends what you're doing. Yes. I mean, there are other uses of AI in health as well for diagnosis, which involves like taking advantage of machine vision, say, to automatically make diagnoses from scans in a way that's at least as good as, as an expert human, maybe can be done much faster, maybe can be done at the point of care, maybe done in the GP surgery instead of a four-day wait and a, a hospital appointment and a, a big machine in a hospital being used. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of startups taking AI and trying to apply that. Yeah, and, and a lot of a lot of good British startups doing that too. That's taking advantage in machine vision, so uh, looking at CAT scans or MRI scans. But then there's also potentially insights from from sort of health records. If you've got you know many hundreds of thousands of people with a certain condition, you've got accurate data about how they were treated and various things to do with their age and whatever, you might be able to refine treatments to, to work out what works better. And that, that those insights may well be hidden within NHS data. And, and it's fantastic if those insights can be revealed because that can result in better treatment for people in the future. Yeah, absolutely. But you you started this journey with natural language processing, wanting to teach a computer to come up with the right answer effectively to a question that was asked to it in normal conversational language and you're now you've got a new company unlikely ai which is in sort of semi-stealth mode although people know it exists because i've seen it on your label at conferences <laughs> but without obviously revealing what you don't want to reveal but what do you think the next big challenge is going to be in machine learning so i think machine learning well it's very funny you asked that question the way you did because all of AI now is focused exactly on that. It's focused on machine learning and not just focused on machine learning. It's focused on very specific types of machine learning algorithms, in particular deep learning, which is a form of neural networks, very big neural networks. We've discovered an algorithm that can continue to improve with the vast amounts of data that we have around now. So one of the fascinating things about right now is that the amount of data that the human race is producing is growing exponentially absolutely vast amounts of data. Every time you pick up your phone, you're generating data. Something like 90% of all the data that the human race has ever produced was produced in the last 18 months. There's yeah. stats like that going on, which are absolutely mind-blowing. And there is one machine learning algorithm, which is called deep learning, uh, which has got this amazing, in many ways you could say it doesn't work very well, to be fair. But what it does do, which is miraculous, is that it can deal with absolutely vast amounts of data and it can continue to improve as you give it more and more data. And this one technique uh, is now where a very large percentage of all AI research is going and AI investment is going. And it's solving it's solving problems that haven't been solved before, including some of the things to do with speech, including many other problems as well. And this is where, for example, DeepMind's 3D protein 
yes. comes from. Yes, so DeepMind almost pretty much exclusively does deep learning, applies deep learning to a very large number of different problems. But the algorithm, you know, has its has its drawbacks. It's essentially what you're essentially doing is calculating literally billions of weights. I mean, you can think of the output of a of a of training a deep learning model as creating an equation with 11 billion weights in it or 10 billion weights. So what comes out the other end is very very difficult to explain to to explain how it's how it's come about. The only the answer to the question is oh yes, well we put the data in and we calculated this equation with 11 billion weights in it and what comes out the other end is the result. Here you go. So and 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 this is this is relevant for for some things it, I guess it doesn't really matter if you can't explain if you say you know, when Alexa recognizes the word Alexa, the fact that she can't explain exactly how she recognized the word Alexa is kind of irrelevant. In fact, if I asked you how you recognize your name, Ed, you know, the fact you can't answer that question doesn't make much difference. But for some things, not being able to explain is really important. You know, if you're, if that model is making life and death decisions, if it's, even if it's approving you for a loan or something like that, it's kind of, it is important to know how that decision was made. You can't just say there's a great big black box. You yeah. trained it for thousands of man weeks of, of compute time and and this is what it says yeah that's, that's not good enough and there's also a the, the other thing about it is that it's fundamentally statistical it's never perfect it gets better and better and better and there are products where that's really important as well so again using alexa if one time in 20 when i say alexa's name she doesn't hear me she doesn't respond that isn't a problem because i can say it again you know, it'd be nice if it was more than that, but the product still works very well, even if I have to repeat myself occasionally. If I'm creating an autonomous car and one of its functions is detecting pedestrians, being wrong one time in 20, obviously, yes. is not remotely acceptable. <laughs> you know, being wrong one in time in a, in a, <laughs> in 100,000 isn't acceptable. Yeah. So there's also issues around that. It's sort of fundamentally statistical. It gets better and better. But for some products, you actually need you, you actually need to be able to produce an answer in a very reliable, extremely high-precision way and be able to explain. And, and deep learning doesn't really do that. There's lots of research under the heading of explainable AI, but, but it's kind of, those are kind of fundamental properties of deep learning. So yes, and I, I think there's also some recognition that, that the intelligent things these very big models are doing are kind of not intelligent in the way we want them to be as well. Right. So, I mean, you, you, OpenAI's uh, got this massive model called GPT-3 and it generates text and it creates amazing headlines by writing things. You set it writing a story and it seems to be incredibly creative. And just and, just for all yeah. this, why was GPT-3 such a big deal? Well, it's it's a succession. It's a, it's the largest. It's one of these really really big. It's like an absolute. I was talking about these big deep learning models. It's an absolutely enormous one. It's been trained on absolutely huge amounts of text and it does. It's doing surprising things. I mean, what it does is predict fundamentally. What it does is predict the next word. So, uh, and you can keep doing that so it can generate text and mm. it produces text that's remarkably coherent and often appears to have real intelligence behind it. It, it sort of narrates a story that's original, that makes mm. sense, that's coherent, refers back to things and it's kind of slightly frightening. Yeah. It, it's also very clear. You also find examples where it's very clearly not understanding. It, in some ways, it's legitimate to think of this as a little bit of an illusion. It's a product of the vast amounts of data it's been trained on, and it's it's statistical. It isn't really the result of the kind of reasoning and intelligence that we have. Uh, and, and it's unclear that these models, by making these models bigger and bigger and bigger and training them with more and more data, we will ever get there. Uh, you know, it gets it gets better every time, but it's not it's not clear that it's on a path that will get to that kind of human-like intelligence. Can I ask, as, as an aside, I should get some anecdotage out of you, which is when you um, joined Amazon and were involved in the creation of Alexa, were you involved in discussions to call it Alexa? <laughs> 
so I'm not really allowed to talk about what, what happened inside Amazon. Um, but I, I can draw your attention to the fact that Alexa was a trademark that Amazon already owned. They acquired a internet business called Alexa Internet, which everybody's forgotten about, but it is actually still exists. You can go to alexa.com or whatever, and it's, it ranks websites. Oh, really? So it was a brand that they already owned. And you can make Alexa a male assistant. Yeah, no, you can't. So why, why uh, that's interesting. It's, whole... a, it's a female name. So the product decision was to make it a female persona. And it's called Alexa, so it's a little bit difficult. If you say Alexa and a male voice speaks back to you, that's a bit incongruous. And can you get a male voice on your Alexa speaker? No. Do you think that's a problem? Okay, this, I know this is like a hot button topic. I've been put on the spot about this quite a few times. Okay. I mean, it's, it's such a hot button topic. The United Nations even <laughs> published a report about voice assistants and gender and how big tech companies were being evil by making them female. And uh, and it's also extremely difficult for me to respond, of course, as a as a male yeah. uh, on this topic. But I I think this is overstated. If you're creating a new detective series on TV and you want to define the character that's going to be the detective, you make a whole series of decisions about who that character is. Part of that is what their name is. Part of that is what gender they are. Is it Mrs. Marple? Is it Sherlock Holmes? And then you you run with that. And I think that to some extent that's true with a voice assistant. And that's that's certainly the direction that Amazon went with Alexa. It's what definitely the direction that Microsoft went with Cortana. Cortana is a video game character. And I think if the character you then choose, of course, is massively sexist or or damaging in some way, that that's obviously a problem. And I think the people that complain that that critique Alexa are talking about it's in the home, it's female, it's stereotypical. But it's also she's also like brilliant at mathematics. You know, you can give her the most amazing maths to to do, and she does it brilliantly. She, I mean, she's she's um, stereotype breaking in in other ways as well. The, the personality is friendly, helpful. I mean, not all women think it's bad. A lot of women think it's actually a very a, a positive thing as well. The United Nations report kind of talked about this, but their recommendation to me didn't make any sense. Their recommendation is that when you first configure it. The user should be asked what gender it is. It, there shouldn't be a default. But I don't really understand how that solves the societal problems. I mean, either having a female voice assistant is bad for society or it isn't. The fact that the user has selected it, you know, you still end up with a female. You still end up with a female female voice assistant. It doesn't. It doesn't solve the underlying problems that they were complaining about. So I, I don't have a good. I don't have a good answer to that. I mean, at the moment, obviously, the UK prides itself on being one of the great centres of AI partly because of DeepMind. And when I talked to the founders of DeepMind back in the day, four or five years ago, I was very, very impressed by their commitment to the UK and their deliberate decision, albeit they were taken over by Google, to, to base, continue to be based in London and to build up an ecosystem of AI and to spin out, you know, are happy to see their employees leave and spin out companies and so on. But famously, obviously, on the on the global scale, the war is, you know, this is talk of this AI war between China and the US. I mean, the way you're talking and the kind of things you're talking about, it does seem to me that this is not just the next frontier in terms of computing, but it is the next frontier in terms of it's going to be everything, potentially. So countries need to be on top of it, proprietary about it in that sense. I'm less sure about that. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the UK as well, by the way. So when I left Amazon in 2016, I suddenly had an open calendar, you know, had enough money, I could move anywhere I wanted had a pick of the world cities, had it at the back of my mind where I wanted to found my next startup. I knew that there was going to be one or two big sort of 10-year projects left in me. So where I was going to live was driven partly by where I wanted to found my next business, but also where I wanted to live. 
I had a short list of San Francisco, New York, and London. And after a lot of deliberation, I picked London, decided to base myself in London, decided to find my next business in London. So absolutely, that's my my view as well. Very big fan of the UK as a as a place to do an AI startup. It's a great environment. It's got uh, it's got a lot of talent, as you say, and it's a good environment for startups. The, the UK should be thinking about this because the UK does have a lot of AI talent, has world class yeah. universities, world class talent. So I think it's legitimate for the UK to be thinking, you know, how do we how do we become a, a superpower in AI? I don't think every country in the world needs to worry too much about this. I mean, yeah. these these products. You know, these big tech companies are, are multinational. They they do put the technology everywhere. Yeah, it's not like just because it's invented in the US, it's not going to be used anywhere else. Yeah. Just because it's invented in China, it's not going to be used anywhere else. Yeah. So I, I think there's some definite advantages to to investing in it, particularly if you're already one of the leaders as we are. But I don't I don't think it's disastrous for a, for a country if it if it doesn't have uh, that capability inside itself. So what what do you think are going to be the great wins? in the next sort of 10 years from the use of this technology? We, we touched briefly on health data and the great wins are quicker and more accurate diagnosis. Are there going to be other great wins? I mean, I don't want to appear too facetious, but, you know, it will be a wonderful thing to have a self-driving car and it will be an amazing piece of technology. And it may well be that my view is, you know, we'll get to kind of 90% of being self-driving and it may have a big, impact on logistics but are there going to be other big wins that are going to fundamentally so again you're asking me to predict the future so i mean health isn't just about faster diagnosis it's about better treatment so curing disease yes <laughs> that's a pretty big win <laughs> yes yeah. i'm not asking you to necessarily predict the future i'm sort of i'm asking you to predict the not the battlefields even but where the most transformatory things yeah so autonomous well i think autonomous cars is underappreciated as a transformational technology. Right. Okay. People think, oh, great, I don't have to drive. But but the reality is the percentage of cities that are taken up with car parking space is absolutely enormous. And what people, very common reaction I get when I talk about autonomous cars is, oh, I could never afford one. And I'm thinking, hang on a second, why would you buy an autonomous car? That doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, if autonomous cars become mainstream, very few people will own a car. It, it'll be, everybody will just be, it'll be like an Uber-like service, but it'll be a fraction of the cost. So if you if you get in a taxi in India, the, the taxi fare is tiny. Yeah. And uh, it's still a car that's manufactured internationally. It's still using oil, which is an internationally priced commodity. Mm. The reason why the taxi fare in India is a fraction of what it is here is because of the person. Uh, and autonomous cars will have no person. Yeah. There'll be fleets of autonomous cars driving around and you'll use an app to flag one, you'll get in it and you'll use those to, to those for transport. Yeah. And those cars will be much hev- more heavily utilised. Yeah. So if you own a car, the percentage of time it's actually being driven is whatever it is, 3 or 4%. If everybody's using Uber-like autonomous cars, they'll be utilised much more, which means there will be much fewer of them. Uh, and those cars will not be parked in city centres. They'll be, at the end of the day, they'll, be, they'll either be circulating continuously or they'll be parked somewhere outside the city and there'll be far fewer of them yeah. and that frees up huge amounts of space uh for the city there'll also be electric i mean obviously the electrification of cars is a is a technology direction that's happening independently of autonomous yeah but but in terms of pollution and everything that's also so so it's a completely transformatory technology in more ways than just not having to drive so that's a big one and it's, it's unclear when that's going to happen I, i'm still optimistic but but what i was talking about how uh, about deep learning and how it narrows in you know, it gets closer and closer to what you need. I think the reason why autonomous cars have taken longer than people thought is because it's taken longer to get to that the product 
milestones that you need to be able to put them out and not have to retrieve them. You know, they, they, they can't deal with the, the, the rare occasions. You know, you know that you can drive through a pile of snow and it'll work. Mm. Uh, but if something strange is in the center of the road, you know, you might have to stop. It might be dangerous to drive over it. That, that kind of common sense yeah. for very rare cases hasn't, you know, is something that the uh, yeah. the AI needs to needs to learn and needs to be able to do extremely reliably. And, and that's what's held it back. But I'm still optimistic that they will they will come and they may they may come very quickly. You know, once one city suddenly gets autonomous cars adoption, you may find that many other cities follow very very quickly. So you alluded earlier to um, selling companies as well. So you've been at both ends of the spectrum. You you built a company and then sold it to a US company, which is an issue that kind of to a certain extent exercises politicians. And you're also now an angel investor with ninety plus investments in startups. Yep. You've said very emphatically and obviously welcomingly uh, that you think the UK stroke London is a fantastic place to build a startup, particularly one in deep learning and um, deep tech. What are the kind of things you think the government should be doing in terms of, you know, your startup back in the day, EV was supported by grants and tax breaks. No doubt a lot of the companies you're investing at the moment are also taking advantage of those. The UK obviously has a vibrant startup scene. It has an ongoing issue with how to scale up. Are there any kind of big moves that you think about when you're looking at your investments, thinking if only if the government did this or that, it would actually really move the dial? So I think the government's already doing a lot of it, actually. Yeah. And I, I think the, the current government's actually quite in tune with what's needed. I mean, the two, the two big things that you need to make a startup, to make a deep tech startup work, are talent and capital. So uh, there's a lot of talent already in the UK, uh, and to the extent it's not having a, a, a very being able to bring that talent into the UK when it's needed is very important. And access to capital, you know, it takes a long time for a deep tech startup to become profitable, uh, which means you need to invest and hire and build over many years, which requires venture capital. It requires equity investment, and the UK has a scheme called EIS which is a, a, a tax-efficient way. If you're taking that very big risk of investing in these very, very early companies, most of which, are fa- most of which fail, the market doesn't quite work. Uh, so the tax breaks help with encouraging investment in those very early companies. And the EIS scheme has got some problems. But in, in terms of the tax break, it's a very healthy thing that's out there. And there have been other schemes as well. There's VCT, there's, yeah. uh, the British Business Bank is, is backing a certain class of venture capital company and helping uh, fund them and make it more attractive to invest in these early stage companies. There are things that government are doing that have been very useful in the UK and help the ecosystem a lot. And, and a lot of it's also about things that are maybe less clear from a government point of view, having the experience here, having exit entrepreneurs, I mean, following the cycle. I, I, you know, I followed a, a classic cycle that sort of powers Silicon Valley and powers other things where you have, yeah. you're a founder yourself, you learn all the expertise, you go through an exit, you have some money from the exit, uh, and then you're mentoring and helping the next generation of founders with that money. So I've very much been doing that. I've deployed a lot of my a lot of the money I made from Amazon. I've deployed in early startups. I've been helping uh, incubator in Canada and now in Oxford, where I've been mentoring many hundreds of startups. The Creative Destruction Lab. I'm a member of Cambridge Angels. Cambridge Angels is a organisation in Cambridge that invests in early stage startups and helps founders. So that that ecosystem, that that circling of money, circling of expertise, uh, is extremely important too. Less, not completely clear how government can make that happen more, but but it's self reinforcing and very very important part of the overall equation. You sold to Amazon and DeepMind sold to Google, and you sold presumably 
for access to talent and access to capital? No, not okay. really. Um, the so just going back to the story of my first startup, we we had this. You know, I, I started by inventing this technology that could kind of understand language and answer questions. We then did what's called a pivot, where you, you try it with one product and then that doesn't succeed. And then you, you pivot, you try the same technology with something different. So we pivoted several times in the course of the startup. And the last thing we, we tried was a voice assistant. So we built a voice assistant called EV. We launched it. That was a successful product we had. We had millions of downloads. We had a very busy 2012 when that was launched we launched it just after apple launched siri so we were suddenly positioned oh, that's right and you were on the app store and there yeah. was rumors that they were going to take you off yes the that's right so it, normally when that literally the world's biggest company launches a product that competes directly with you people might think that's a, a problem but actually it helped us enormously because they spent all these millions defining the voice assistant space which was fantastic because we were kind of kind of there the sort of phone-based voice assistant space uh, and we were kind of positioned as the the credible alternative to Siri with a startup of 30 people against the biggest company in the world. And the technology was was also clearly better in many ways as well. So people could sort of try them side by side and realise our tech was better than than what Apple had, had It must had be a bizarre feeling, because you were yep. what, a team of 30 people yep. and yep. you created better technology than yep. this gargantuan company. 30, 30 people in Cambridge up against uh, American, <laughs> literally the biggest biggest market cap company in the world. So we had a very busy year. How do you think you pulled that off? Just as a, a side, I, mean, I, I think it's. I think it, you know, size doesn't doesn't result necessarily result in better innovation and better R and D, better invention. Interesting. That is most definitely something that a very small team can do and be world class at. So we had this incredible year where every big company was trying to figure out their response to to Siri, and and we were on their call list. So we were had we had like forty or fifty big companies talking to us. Sometimes there were multiple divisions of the same company. And at the end of it, we actually had, when the dust settled, we had two acquisition offers and a financing. The two acquisition offers, one of them was from a household, Silicon Valley household name, who was going to basically relocate half the team to Silicon Valley and lay off the rest. And the other one was Amazon, who wanted to invest in Cambridge, keep the team together, grow the team and invest in the city and have us do what we were already doing which is uh, which is you know with, with build a voice assistant and you know we made the decision to go with amazon and a lot of that was about the fact that they wanted to invest and keep the team together and have us do what we were already doing mm. and they've been absolutely true to their word they've invested heavily in cambridge it's now it's but you now. didn't go for the financing is, is sort of the point the, the financing actually turned out to be an acquisition offer in disguise the people that were offering the financing actually were wanting to acquire us they thought they would get some money into the company and sit on the board first uh, i discovered later but also the Part of the decision was about also making the product, building the product, making it a reality. And yes, okay, so access to talent and investment. Yes, I see what you're saying now. Yes, that that, that was part of it in terms of yeah. delivering. And that was also obviously very successful as well. well first of all, it's a great story about Amazon. It's, it's yeah. interesting that uh, the time we're recording this, Boris Johnson has, has been in New York. And of course, the British press expected him when he met Jeff Bezos to say, pay more tax, Jeff. But when I was a tech minister, although obviously I couldn't say that tech companies sh- shouldn't pay tax, but I was keen to point out that uh, what uh, the big four, as it were, who get berated in the press for lots of reasons, they do massively invest in the UK. And I think this is a great Amazon success story that perhaps Amazon doesn't talk enough about. But also with my sort of politician hat on, which is a sort of slightly boring riff, but I'd still like your thoughts on it. You know, the riff is we're never going to get out of this bind where successful growing British tech companies 
can grow big enough to be cliche klaxon alert, the next Amazon, the next Google. Is that a problem? Why is that? I think it is a problem. And I think part of it is around precedent and how big people think. Exactly. So in Silicon Valley, there is vastly more capital for businesses. There are also people that have firsthand been involved in the creation of these tech giants. So don't see it as particularly unprecedented or impossible. It's something they've, they've, they've seen several times in their careers already. And because there is so much more money, they, they think about building one of these things. They think of that as a realistic possibility, something they want to, to go for. If you don't have that environment around you, your perception of money is, is different. You know, if you're broke and you're a founder and somebody offers you 50 million for your startup, that's kind of transformative you know, to your personal financial situation. Yeah. It's very difficult to say no. And 50 million is a, is a rounding error in this sort of Silicon Valley terms. So you need an ecosystem where people are comfortable with the idea of creating the next Google, the next Amazon, yeah. and are, are also supported on that path, also have the capital. The, the capital situation in the UK has is been completely transformed over yeah. the last 10 or 15 years. This is exactly what people are saying. Yeah. Uh, in 2008, when I was raising my Series A for, for EV, there was like maybe four VC firms that would take my meetings and only two of them had an active fund. Now, right now, I couldn't list all the possible sources of finance for my business in a spreadsheet. I, would, I don't think anybody could produce a definitive list of all the possible sources. So that's completely different. And there was some very big US funds that are coming to the UK yeah. now as well. And the, the size of the fund is relevant. If, you're, if you've got a, a, a 20 million pound fund, putting 1 million in is a significant percentage of the fund. If you've got like a, uh, like a 500 million fund, then you can deploy a lot of capital into a startup with a view to making it, you know, getting that absolutely huge result. Yeah. And that's what you're shooting for. I think it comes, but it needs, it needs that cycle. But I was talking about that entrepreneur cycle when you exit and then you help the next generation and you go into venture capital yeah, exactly. and you do investment. So that, that's what Silicon Valley has in spades. Is, is lots and lots of that that have been happening over generations. So it, it can't happen overnight, uh, but, but there's, there's some evidence that that path is happening in the UK. It's interesting. I think another problem is that British companies don't go out and acquire. I'm always interested, you know, when they get to a certain size, why aren't they just going out and buying, buying their competitors in the way the US, to a certain extent, buy their competitors? I, I think they do, but I think they're, they're smaller. Uh, uh, so again... For a lot of business, even spending fifty million is it would be a lot of money for a sort of medium-sized British business, but to to Google or Amazon, it's a it's like a rounding error. They don't even have to report it because it's such a small percentage of their of their turnover. So I think the the ability to take risk and throw large amounts of capital at stuff with a view to you know a calculated risk with large amounts of capital is much easier. If you're, I mean that that I think is at the heart of it. Uh, great. Um, well, that's been fantastic. I want to end with a gimmick, if I may. Okay. Your Alexa has been unbelievably silent mm. uh, even though we've talked a lot about her mm. can you turn her on okay oh, i'm muted alexa who is william tunstall pedo william tunstall pedo the british entrepreneur and businessman who founded ev formerly true knowledge well i just think that totally underplays you frankly <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media. 